0: Welcome to The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination, Extra Blooms Edition. These Extra Blooms episodes are revisits of our past guest. My co-producer, Angela Washington, and I very often find ourselves sharing updates with each other. Oh gosh, did you see what that guest was up to? Did you see what they did? Did you see that? Did you see that? And we figured that if we get excited seeing what new things they're accomplishing, that you might too. So these Extra Blooms Editions are that, a little extra where we revisit with a past guest to see what else has gone on since last we spoke. Maybe they've got a new passion project, a new idea, a new book, a new accomplishment. And we like to share that. So feel free to go to themorninggloryproject.com to listen to any previously aired episode. And we love it. If you write a comment, share it out, give us a review and let others know, of course you can always subscribe to the morning glory project across all of the podcasting platforms. That way you just never miss an episode. So welcome to The Morning Glory Project. I'm glad you're here today, and I know that you'll love hearing from our Extra Bloom guest. It is my joy to welcome back to The Morning Glory Project for an Extra Blooms edition, Meredith May. She was our guest sharing her intimate and inspiring memoir, The Honey Bus, and we welcome her back now to share the story that she portrays in Loving Edie, How a Dog Afraid of Everything Taught Me to be Brave. And this new memoir is really more, it is certainly a dog story. So folks who love animals will love this book. But it's more than that to me. And I think of it as a dog story to be sure, but it's really the story of what our relationships with vulnerable creatures can teach us about ourselves and how we can learn from that. So if you are an animal lover and specifically a dog lover, you will love this book, but I think there's something in it for everybody who has loved somebody vulnerable or who is a person who is vulnerable, particularly to anxiety and concern and perhaps other mental health challenges. So Welcome, Meredith. I'm so glad to have you back.
1: Thank you, Betsy. I am so glad to be here. I think I was one of your first podcasts, right?
0: You were. You were. You you trusted me when we were in the beginning, and now we've uh, we've been on for two and a half years and have welcomed such beautiful stories. And I'm thrilled to be able to invite a few folks back to when when they have new events and extra blooms in their lives. So thanks for joining us. Tell me first of all. If, if you see the cover of this book and and if we share a clip of this, you'll see the beautiful cover. I mean, who can resist a golden retriever puppy for Pete's sake? I mean, come on. It's just a fabulous picture. But tell me how and why Edie came into your life.
1: Well, I've always had a dog in my life. I mean, even during college when you can't bring a dog to the dorm, um, I sort of latched on to the, um, my crew coach's dog for four years. And so I just, I was raised by my grandpa and he always had a dog at his heels. And that's just how I uh, wanted to move through the world. So I had had um, two golden retrievers. And then when um, the second one passed, I immediately wanted another one. But at that point I was dating my wife and she had not grown up. Uh, with good experiences with the animals, and so she was hesitant about getting another dog. We were living together, not married at the time so i um I knew we would eventually get a dog. I just had to um campaign very gently.
0: <laughs> well. Campaign very gently or work very patiently. <laughs> and Jen, it's not that she doesn't love animals and, and all of that. She And she's a very crucial and beautiful character in this story, too. I hate to call it someone you love a character, but that's how it is on the page. Um, but she's, she's an amazing person in lots and lots of ways. And it was at the time a police officer. Mm-hmm. And what were her hesitations about getting a dog? Because I know that there are lots of couples on the planet who one person wants the dog and the other person doesn't.
1: Well, when I met her, she was a cat person. She had two cats. Um, But her hesitation is kind of sad. Um, She grew up with a rather cruel stepfather uh, in Humboldt, rural Humboldt on 60 acres in a mountain really in the middle of nowhere. And she loves animals. But uh she would always bring strays home, and the father, the stepfather would get tired of them or irritated by them, and he would make them go away in mysterious ways um, and but sometimes in outright cruel ways uh, right in front of her uh, I'll leave that for the book. it's pretty awful,
0: yeah well, and so so for her, an animal as much as she loves animals represented a wound and a some trauma and pain in her past. And so she had her hesitations. You lived then in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So eventually you wear her down. I do. (laughs) Eventually your patience wears her down and you, you woo her into getting a, a dog and tell me about finding Edie. And then tell me about how it turns.
1: We were taking a walk at Fort Funston in San Francisco, which is kind of like dog Disneyland. It's this huge, beautiful park <laughs> on the cliff and um, dogs can go on the beach in the forest. And I mean, it's, it's uh, where you go on weekends, if you have a dog and there was a guy walking by with a golden puppy that looked so much like my Stella that I uh, just started fell to my knees and, and pet this puppy completely inappropriately. I know you're supposed to ask and everything, but I'd gotten to that point where I was like really desperate
0: for another dog. And and, and Stella was your previous golden.
1: Yeah. She's the one who passed and um, who I was waiting to get a second golden after Stella. And uh, he let me know where he got her. And it was a, a breeder in San Francisco. So, that's where we went. And um, there were three puppies left out of a litter of 10. And she was the only one who kind of um, rolled over and exposed her belly and, and was keyed on us right away. So we immediately picked her. We didn't ask very many questions. We didn't research the breeder. We I was um, just wanted what I wanted mm. and I wanted it now. And then we brought Edie home And at the beginning, she seemed like a normal puppy with, you know, puppy fear of certain things. But then we tried to take her on a play date at the SPCA, and she completely freaked out and bolted for the door. And I'd never seen a puppy run away from other puppies.
0: So there wasn't a menacing dog there or something like this. This was a, a normal puppy environment, and she sort of freaked out. And this was the hint the harbinger of things to come, as they say. And I want to clarify for listeners too. And, and if you read this book, because I kept telling my husband about as I was reading your story, and I kept telling him, Oh, this is about a really anxious dog. And he'd say, Oh, like Rusty or this dog of a friend of ours. And I said, No, 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 way more than that. Oh, like so and so. He would name these dogs that were a little skittish, or a little shy, or rescue dogs that were a little, had a little tremble when they first met you and had took a long time to warm up. And I kept saying, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about here. So tell me what we're talking about here when we talk about a dog afraid of everything.
1: Yeah. And your husband's response was our response too, to our own puppy. Like, no, no, no. She's just maybe a little afraid of that thing or no, no, no. And it just got to be unreal. Like we would try to take her on a walk. She'd learned how to walk on a leash in puppy class. But we couldn't even get to the end of the block because she would freeze and stop moving if she saw a car, another dog, another person, a garage door opening, a bag floating on the wind, um, you know, anything, a bird. So she, if she wasn't on a leash, she would run for her life because there were a couple times we had her off leash. Like, on a trail, we tried taking her to quieter and quieter and quieter places,
0: which are not so easy to find in San Francisco,
1: right. And we would go at six like, a yeah, m on a Tuesday. You know, we were trying to avoid stimulation the best we could at the same time, like try to help her develop and have some good experiences. But she would just bolt and and a couple of times she. Ran into traffic, and it was just the scariest thing in my life. And we realized we we can't ever have her off leash, right? And we can't ever walk her on a sidewalk.
0: Which, for somebody who was a runner and were used to dog companions and those things, that was a disappointment. Which, which is another theme that I'll, I'll come back to in a bit, but. The other thing is, it sounds, sounds like, oh, not such a big deal. You have a, a puppy that bolts, so you keep them on a leash. That's not such a big thing. And I can hear what my husband would be saying if I told that story. He'd say, well, then just keep on a leash. What's the big deal? Tell me why that's more of a big deal. But first of all, she doesn't remain a puppy. She grows to be how
1: <laughs> She's uh, almost 80 pounds now.
0: So yeah. she can, if she's a, a fearful dog of 80 pounds on a leash... Can pull you into traffic.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, it got to a point where, you know, with with Edie, we can't just leave her with a friend to go away for a weekend, which we used to do all the time with Stella. Um, we because she's a liability. I, you know, we we did leave her with a friend in the beginning before we realized how much of a issue we had on our hands, and she dragged our friend on the ground. You know, our our friend is petite. She used to be a ballerina and dragged her uh, through the sand at Fort Funston. So, yeah, our puppy could injure other people. Um, One time we took her to a restaurant and we had her tied up, seated under our table. And someone popped out of a door behind our table and scared her. And she took off with my chair dragging after her into traffic and cars were screeching out of the way left and right. She could have killed a person, right. not only herself. So we had we got to this point where we were trying all sorts of remedies and working with behaviorists, and we were really I didn't want to say it, but my wife had, you know, more of the responsibility and adult behavior to say, you know, maybe this dog is too sensitive for the world. Mm. She's a liability to other people and herself. And that, you know, unless we can find a, a farm for her to live with way in the middle of nowhere, maybe we have to put this dog down. It's the right thing to do.
0: Which which for an animal lover is a horrible oh, thing. to do. Because this isn't an animal that was in physical pain or any of that. It was a, it was a dog with, dare I say, it a mental health issue. Of course. But she wasn't always like this when she's alone in the house with you and your wife and things are in a controlled environment. Tell me about Edie.
1: She is the most adorable creature. I mean, I read somewhere that dogs with high fear have high, everything, every emotion. And I think it's true with her. I've mm-hmm. never had a dog that kisses this much that wants to cuddle this much that, uh, plays with such, you know, ferocity. I mean, she's, she's on a, she's on an 11 on every emotion (laughs) and she's hilarious. We've now figured out what kind of environment she needs and how to, how to create that for her. Even when we travel with her, she's Mm -hmm. so much better now.
0: And she's how old now?
1: She'll be four in September.
0: Okay. So she's not only has she matured and settled a little, but you've also learned what things do and don't work for her.
1: Exactly. I mean, the main thing is we moved out of the Bay Area.
0: Well tell me about that. Now see I want to I w I wanna I wanna pause here just for a second because I know different people have different attitudes and vantage points about animals and how they relate to human life. You know, some people say mm-hmm. we're all creatures and that's it and we're all equal in God's eyes, right? <laughs> and some people would be like that. And some people would say, no, humans are very different and animals are very different and they they value it differently. But I want to say that wherever you land on that spectrum, this relationship with this animal was not unlike a parent with a child, a troubled child, a child who is born with a disability or a mental health challenge or a something. And some of the things that you and Jen went through with regard to this animal have strong parallels, if not identical to what lots of um, people who have, troubled, loved ones might go through. And of course, in humans, we don't think to euthanize somebody because they have an anxiety disorder. That's not something that would ever occur to us. But in the animal kingdom, things are a little different. And and by the way, that was not something you pondered on for a thousand years. This, is, this was mm-hmm. one of the many considerations. How did you intervene? And before we go into that, also that those of us who've had A child with a learning challenge or a child with an anxiety issue, sometimes at first you don't know what it is and you think, I just need to push them. I need, they're being a little lazy or they're being, you know, we, they need to knock it off and get over it and, or they need to focus. And I can see that it's easy to be impatient and think that if, you know, you kind of a little tough love will help it out Mm -hmm. or a little training. And you did all of those things and you did more. So with Edie, you have to, you had to look at medical intervention as well, correct?
1: Oh, correct. I mean, we started with um taking her to puppy classes, and um she adjusted. They were a little scary at first, but she adjusted um and then we ended up hiring our uh, puppy school trainer for to come to our house and to help us and she was the one who really sat us down and said, "Stop trying to make this puppy the way." you think a golden retriever should be. Stop trying to fix her. And she didn't use these exact words, but she was the first one who said, You have a special dog and this dog's going to need accommodations for the rest of her life. And you have to learn how to read your dog's body language and understand what fear looks like when it escalates and um, and get her out of a situation before she reaches full-blown panic. Mm. So that person really helped us. You know, we, we still resisted a little bit. I shouldn't say we, I, I still resisted. My (laughs) wife was much, um, much better at understanding our dog and, and trying to, um, make her feel better. But I, you know, my, my attitude with myself and my life and my career has always been, Fix things and suck it up, buttercup. And, you know, I had a difficult childhood, and uh, that's largely what my first memoir is about. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm all about self improvement and uh, resiliency. And when I couldn't pull that out of my dog, I was taking it personally. So I would try harder.
0: Yet another parallel mm-hmm. for so many parents that may have a child that. It embarrasses them because they think it makes it lo- them look like bad parents or or they feel as though they need to control things. It, it seems like a lot of the struggle, and I'll put a name on this, Meredith, and you, you tell me if it feels true or not. It seems like for you, a lot of the struggle in the book was between acceptance and control. Bingo. Between thinking you can fix things and needing to simply accept that this was this animal's nature. And that you didn't have, you know, accepting the limits of our own influence just sucks. <laughs> it just <laughs> does. <laughs> I, I never like that when I discover those boundaries. And it seems like that was some of the struggle for you.
1: Completely. You know, I, my, this wasn't the dog I expected, but obviously this was the dog that I needed.
0: Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Because, she taught me to stop fixing her. She taught me to see her. She taught me to give her what she needs. And she taught me that it's not the Meredith show all the time that this has nothing to do with me. And my dog needs to, needs calm. She needs to move slowly. She loves routine repetition. And I had to slow my pace to get down to that level with her. And it made me feel a lot better, frankly, and calm and, um, and it also just made me see that I can be really pushy and obstinate and, and not see the larger picture and, uh, and that I have opinions about what's right and wrong rather than what just is.
0: It sounds like she, she sort of acquainted you with your shadow self, the the parts of yourself that you weren't so proud that you have.
1: Yes. Like that we
0: all have, by the way. I don't mean that you're a more shadowy person than the rest of us. I just mean that this dog acquainted you with your impatience and your pushiness and your making it the Meredith show, as you call it.
1: Yes. And that's why I'm a little anxious about this book coming out because with my first memoir, I, I'm a child and I can sort of hide behind that character, but this is raw me adult with icky, icky thoughts. And so, um, I feel much more vulnerable standing in front of people talking about a dog book. Right. You know, it, writers write about their dogs all the time, but they're not really writing about their dogs. They're writing about how they, their relationship with their dog and what that says about them, which I didn't realize until I was halfway through the book. And my editor kind of laughed at me like because she kept pushing me to put more of my reaction to what was happening in the book. Mm. And then I realized, oh, of course, I'm not writing just about Edie. Edie's the catalyst for the story, really.
0: Well, we here at the Morning Glory Project, we've had two guests prior to you that wrote dog stories that aren't just dog stories. We have Julie Barton, of course, who wrote Dog Medicine, which that's sort of the reverse of your story. In your case, it was the the dog that was troubled and the people had to learn to accept that. And in Julie Barton's case, she was in trouble. She was suffering as a young adult with severe depression and she, and the dog sort of helped her heal. And the second author is of course, Pam Houston, who wrote Sight Hound, one of my favorite animal stories of all. And that's really about how animals taught her to love and taught her to love people and so that's what I say. It's, it's more than a dog book in, in that way. So you're fearful because you don't come across as a perfect person or perfect character in this. And I'm, I'm actually pleased by that because I think it would be quite the boring book if that was the case, because the struggle that you go through and indeed the struggle that this puts on your marriage became issue. Can you say a bit about that, how this became a, a marital matter?
1: Yeah, I'm the stay-at-home writer, and my wife is the um, go-to work person. She was a police lieutenant in San Francisco at the time, so uh, there there came a point where I was pretty much stuck in the house all day with the puppy. You know, we were trying to take her out and incrementally show her the world and see if we could build her confidence, and we'd always have a setback and something would make her do a U-turn and run back for home. So it got to be a point where I'm in the house all day with this puppy who has cabin fever and she's biting my ankles and chasing me around. And, you know, I'm I'm doing exercises with her that the trainer gave me indoors, but still it's getting to like I I can't work I can't work because it's constant with this little fur ball.
0: So it it's not unlike a parent at home with a newborn child who thinks that they're going to work while the kid's napping and then the kid doesn't nap and whatever.
1: I imagine. I imagine. (laughs) Yes.
0: Well, I can tell you. (laughs) Okay. Having had that experience.
1: Yeah. And it got to to the point where I was starting to really resent my wife. And there's this scene that I think is kind of funny in the book where I've just had an argument with Edie. Like she kept biting me, kept biting me. And I'm saying, no, no, no. And finally I just put her in a room and slammed the door and I'm sitting in the living room crying. And my wife comes home from work and she doesn't notice. And she goes up to see the puppy. Like, what's the puppy doing in the bedroom? Hi, everybody. And I just said, you know, she was bad. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like so upset. And, you know, we had to have a talk. I said, I feel like you're the dad and, and you come home and you have a couple hours with the puppy and that's it. And you're not seeing like the other 22 where I am just rattled and stressed. And, you know, we had to figure out a way to um, give me a break. So she started taking the puppy to her work one day a week.
0: Which is kind of amazing. Well, so, so just go back for a second, though. It's just interesting because here you are uh, a lesbian couple and here you fell into these sort of gender traditional
1: Mm -hmm.
0: heteronormative sort of patterns that have been, you know, the mom at home all day and and the dad comes home and she wants to, she wants the dad to be mad at the kid with her. And, you know, that's been happening, you know, ad nauseum for millennia. Right. And so here you are in this atypical situation. So, so she, she gave you a break. She got it. Mm-hmm. And worked to bring Edie, which was no small feat, by the way, to bring a dog, bring this dog to work.
1: Yeah, I, I really think my wife is the hero of this book, um, what she went through. You know, she, she worked at the police academy at the time. And they had a, it was an old elementary school, really, that was really run down that had been turned into academy. And so she, she was... The boss, she was the lieutenant of this little area. So she allowed dogs, you know, she brought hers and there was a colleague who brought his two, um, I want to say French bulldogs. And so there were these three puppies whirring around people's legs all day. And it lasted for about a, a month and a half until someone finally said, you know, I can't work this way. But Edie had a blast and I think it really helped her development. And, um, you know, she, she learned to be in a different place with different animals. She's, she's great. She's great with other dogs. And I think that helped her. She saw some dogs that mentored her.
0: So in a way you've said it, said it before, and I want to go back to it. You said this wasn't the dog that I wanted or imagined, but it was the dog that I needed. Mm -hmm. And As good fortune would have it, the two of you had the means to address this dog's concern medically, psychologically, training, you know, the right kinds of treats and healthy activities and all. That's a beautiful thing. Not everybody would have those resources, of course, and they'd need to make other choices. And so I I don't want to be judgmental about that. Good fortune was that you had that luxury. And one of those was that you kind of got it that you couldn't live in an urban environment with this dog.
1: Yeah and you know to to be completely transparent we we had always wanted to move out of the bay area and move back to my hometown uh, in Monterey County so we had always had that as a plan but we were going to wait until Jen retired and she had about two and a half more years to go for our plan but it it just got to be so difficult that uh, we started casually looking like, what if we just found the right place early? And that sounds a the... little bit
0: like, what if we just go look at puppies? <laughs> yes,
1: what exactly. <laughs> and, and we do come down uh, to this area a lot because a lot of my friends and some of my family still live here. So we would come down a lot anyway. So we'd be out here for that reason. And we just kind of peek at the Carmel pine cone and look at the listings, you know, and, one of our very good friends is uh, a real estate agent. And once we let it slip that we were casually looking, she was on it and, sh- and she found a place 15 minutes from her house. Cause she wanted us to be her neighbors. So we found a place and we thought, well, let's put in an offer and we got it. And it was like basically two week process, which is crazy. And, um, we decided we would just live apart during the week. Jen f- lived with a friend uh, Monday through Thursday, and then would drive two and a half hours down every weekend to be with me and the puppy. But the minute we let Edie out of the car at the new place, it's um, it's on a mountain, 1800 feet up. It's 10 acres, but three it surrounds the house and is fenced. Uh, she just took off like, a rocket and was jumping and running through the, through the um, landscape in a way that I've never seen with just joy, her tail straight up. She found a dead uh, rabbit leg and was like so pleased with herself. I mean, we looked at ourselves and said, this is our dog. It was amazing. Instant. It was instant.
0: Well, again, looking at the parallels with human loved ones, I wonder how many parents who have struggled with a with a child that has either a physical or a mental health challenge, and they finally succumb and say, you know, let's let's change our lives, let's get a single story house, or let's, you know, whatever it might be that is the accommodation, and they say, oh, oh my gosh, I wish we'd done this so much, and this is what it, it, it seems to be part of the acceptance factor of you know, not, we're not going to change this creature, human or canine into what we need in our lives, what we need to change our lives to recognize and accept that this is, this is the, this is the creature in our lives.
1: Exactly. You know, we figured out that what you cannot do with Edie is bring her to a brand new place, either a, a, a hike or someone's house or, you know, a, a, a new, whatever. You can't bring her to a new place put her on the leash and go, let's go. I mean, she wants to sit there and check it all out and make sure it's okay before proceeding. So rather than get into like a tug of war with her, I make several plans to go to that place for longer and longer little increments. So it's like five minutes to Ron and Betsy's house, then 10, then 15, then try an hour and just watch her body language. And as soon as she gets uncomfortable take her away. And eventually she'll adjust to the place, but it's got to be on her terms. And, um, you know, I had to, I had to accept that it's not my dog being ornery. My dog's trying to tell me something. It's not me being a crazy dog lady by letting my dog have all the power in the relationship. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, watching her, understanding her and helping her. And that's okay. And then when she has a win, like when she first learned how to swim in a lake and chase a ball, I mean, we worked on that for six or seven months when she first did it. Oh my gosh. You know, the highs are so much higher with dogs like this because they're doing normal dog things, but it's such a big deal. It's not normal for them. And when they do it, I could ride that high for weeks. It's just
0: great. Well, you know, I have to also tell you that I met myself a lot in your story Hmm. and in, in a number of ways. And I thought not only just about my relationship with animals, but with people as well. My husband has been losing his hearing as, as we age, right? He's getting older and his hearing, and I find that I get really impatient with him. He doesn't want to go to restaurant or to, you know, uh, trivia night at a bar because it's just, it's a cacophony of noise to him and he can't, it's annoying to him. And I would get frustrated. like, Oh, just come on. And I'd say, well, just wear, wear hearing aids for Pete's sake. What's a big thing. He said, it just, I feel like I'm underwater and I don't really help that much. And, and I found myself getting impatient with him. It's like, wait a minute, this hearing loss thing, this is not his fault. This is not something wrong with him. This is a natural part of aging for lots of folks. And how come I'm being such a butthead about it is really what I kind of came up against myself. And also even just thinking about my own relationship with my dog who went blind in his last four or five years of life and how we thought we could have him do the normal things, but things that he'd never been afraid of before, he was suddenly afraid of because he couldn't see them. And mm-hmm. we brought him to a hotel room and took him with us, thought we were doing a great thing. And he just cried the whole time. I thought, we can never bring this dog out again. It's mm-hmm. just too mean. So I, I met myself and I, and I met my own kind of control freaky kind of qualities in your story. And, mm. and you and I could probably identify well <laughs> <laughs> in that way. I I, and that perhaps my husband is more Jen than I'm more you in this yep. story.
1: Well, they, those two need to pair up. Definitely. There we go. Those two personalities.
0: There we go. Well, yeah, maybe that's that sort of oh. opposites attract thing. Mm-hmm. So what do you think are the biggest lessons that you have gained because you said the subtitle of your book is how a dog afraid of everything taught me to be brave. And I would have thought you a brave person before this, this animal came into your life. So what kind of bravery do you think you learned?
1: It has to do with motherhood. When, when uh, the trainer was working with us and explained, you have a special needs animal who's going to require accommodations. My immediate thought was, Oh no like, I I don't know if I can do that. I, you know, I had, at that point, I had always had dogs to make me feel better. Mm. Um, you know, a, as a child of, uh, of, uh, absent or abusive parents, um, I had learned how to take care of myself. I learned how to self soothe, and I learned what I needed, and and a dog that like undying loyalty of a dog filled this little hole in me, all the way through adulthood. And so I always had dogs as well, like therapy, like Julie Barton, right? Mm-hmm. Whose wonderful book. I am glad you mentioned those two. I read them both. Um, Julie wrote a blurb for the back of Loving Edie, so I am super excited and thankful. But um, just quick side, um, so I had always had dogs. For me. And now I was presented with a dog that needed me to care for it. And I don't have children, as I said before. I was always afraid to have children or a dependent of any kind because my mother was so bad at it. I thought maybe I had inherited uh, her bad alo- mommy, aloofness. Yeah. Right. and And so I just didn't know if I was up for the task. And I didn't want to resent this creature, even if I was up for the task. I didn't want to always be bummed out about it. Mm. And so, I really—the bravery part—is she taught me that I could do it, that I'm I I am good at it, and that I can still be happy with this dog. Like this dog makes mm. me gloriously happy. Now we get each other. Um, she's improved a lot. She can do things that she couldn't do in the book, and she's, you know, getting better every month. She's getting a little better, but you know, she's perfect as she is now. She not That's what she taught me. I don't need her to be what I think she should be. She's great as she is, and it's been kind of fun figuring out how to how to work with a dog like this.
0: Well, Meredith, I want to thank you so much, first of all, for writing this book, for letting me get the sneak peek behind this before this book launched of getting to read it. It was really quite a privilege and a joy. The book is Loving Edie, How a Dog Afraid of Everything Taught Me to Be Brave by Meredith May. Also, if you have not read The Honey Bus oh, please don't deprive yourself any longer because it's another special and glorious book and and they would make a companion gift package for anybody. Thank you so much for, for gracing me with another conversation in this Extra Blooms edition of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Betsy. This was tons of fun.
0: As I reflect on not only my conversation with Meredith May, but both of her books, and especially today with her book, Loving Edie, I'm reacquainted again with how a story can meet us or how we can meet ourselves in a story Wonder what would I do? Of how would I handle that? We come to it with our judgments, with our hesitations, with our fears, with our "ooh, that's a little bit like me." <laughs> we recognize ourselves in these stories, and I, I encountered sometimes my not so great qualities, and had to look at myself a little bit in the reading of this book. It's a beautiful story, and yes, if you're a dog lover, you'll love it. But also. If you have a vulnerable person in your life, a child with a learning challenge or a physical disability or a loved one who's aging and has less capabilities than they once did, I think that you'll identify with it as well. It's just that power of storytelling that helps us to learn lessons that are both on the page and that we bring to the page. That is just what keeps me reading and writing stories, and sharing them here on The Morning Glory Project. Thanks so much for listening. I certainly appreciate the honor of your time, and I hope that wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whatever books you're reading or films you're watching, or stories you're hearing from loved ones, that they are helping you to bloom.